1: Hello everyone and
2: welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk to Dr. Aaron Roth-Singer. You're most welcome, sir.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
2: Me too. For those who don't know, Aaron is a social and intellectual historian of the modern Middle East and Islam. He received a BA from the University of Pennsylvania, his MPhil from St. Anthony College, University of Oxford, and his PhD from Princeton's Department of Near Eastern Studies. He's currently an assistant professor of Middle East history at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. And as a historian of the modern Middle East, he has a research focus on 20th century Islamic movements and states. And he's the author of the recently published book entitled, In the Shade of the Sunnah, Salafi Piety in the 20th century Middle East. And this is published by the University of California Press. So what is your new book about Aaron and why did you feel the need to write it at this time?
0: Well, Paul, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, and I really value this kind of public engagement. Uh, and, you know, my hope for the book is that it will have um, an audience outside of academia. Uh, yeah. Now, This is a book about the emergence of Salafism as a social movement. Generally, Salafis are studied in terms of either their political engagement or a specific subset of the movement, Salafi jihadism, um, and the engagement in political violence. But the problem is that this doesn't actually represent the vast majority of Salafis. The vast majority of Salafis globally are quietist, even though um, political discourse about Salafism tends to portray exactly the opposite. And Mm. so what I was interested in is really getting to the core of how Salafism works as a social movement, how it emerged, how it shapes society, um, and how it is also shaped by the society from which it has emerged.
1: Mm -hmm. And
0: to do so, I decided to focus on what might seem at first to be a somewhat unorthodox approach, namely Salafi social practice, the daily practices by which Salafis distinguish themselves not simply from other Muslims, but not simply from non-Muslims, but also from other Muslims. Um, these internal distinctions among Muslims being really important here. And so to do so, I trace in the book the origin of four social practices that become distinctly Salafi, one of which is praying in shoes, which was essentially revived by Salafis in the mid-1940s, though it had significant precedent in early Islamic history. Um, A second is a fist-length beard combined with a trim mustache, a third is observance of the prohibition against letting one's robes hang down, namely isbel. And finally, separation of men and women um, to respond to the threat of gender mixing, or ihtilat of ginseng. um And I basically show in the book, A, when these practices emerge, and B, how they emerge. Uh, mm-hmm. And the when and the how are really interesting for understanding Salafism, because Salafis are often depicted as being rather humorless and literalist interpreters of the Islamic tradition. Um, that there's this assumption that Salafis go to the Quran and Sunnah, and then tada, they, the position is fully formed. Now, mm. this is simply not true. Uh, mm. And what I show in the book is that over the course of the period between roughly 1930, the 1930s and 1980s, Salafis come to articulate these distinct practices, but that at the beginning of this period. They had not yet articulated these distinct practices that engage direct engagement with the Quran and the Sunnah. If we're going to call it literalism, then we need to acknowledge that literalism is actually an interpretive approach that has many potential manifestations and that Salafism represents one outcome of that or one potential outcome of that. Mm. Now, the, se- the second reason I came to study Salafism is because I was in some sense frustrated by somewhat unidimensional depictions of them, that Salafis were understood essentially to be religious automatons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't find this to be a particularly persuasive depiction because Salafis, you know, it feels funny to have to say this, but Salafis, like any other pious or you know non-religious folks, are people and are shaped by the world <laughs> around them in exactly the same way that
2: everyone oh, well, uh, uh, this is this is news, folks. We've heard it first on uh, Blogging uh, Theology from Professor Aaron uh, Rotsinger. Uh, you
1: know, this is, they, this is a big are, I know, I know you. Uh, Just
2: on that point, I, I love bringing up books. This is one of the books, uh, uh, The Making of a Salafi Muslim Woman, Past the Conversion by Annabel mm-hmm. Inger, who's not a Muslim, uh, I stress. Uh, she's a researcher at King's College. Uh, which is a university here in London. And I mentioned this, path to Conversion. Uh, it's about many converts to Salafi understandings of Islam who are women. And uh, many, many, or the vast majority of these women are highly educated people, and it's a process uh, over time, yeah. and they're thoughtful and considered, and I'll often know a great deal about their particular understanding of Islam. So just to back up, the, the there is women, too, choosing to convert to a Salafi understanding of Islam, so just to uh, give a more dimensional perspective to what you're saying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the goal here then was to show not simply when Salafi ideas and conceptions of particular social practices emerged, but how they emerged and how they were shaped by competing ideological influences. I think it's very important to take seriously the Salafi effort to derive all law from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. I think it's very important to take seriously the fact that this represents a broader self-understanding. But if we are going to understand Salafism as a 20th century social movement, which I think there's a very good case for doing so, Mm -hmm. if we are going to really bring out the richness of the world from which Salafism emerges and within which it develops, then we need to think more broadly about how Salafis are shaped not merely by their ideological competitors, whether Islamists or secular nationalists, but also how they're shaped by models of what it means to be a citizen transmitted by states, Uh, particularly this idea that the citizen, in order to be a proper and faithful citizen, must regulate their body in certain ways, that they must appear in a certain fashion, because that kind of appearance is not just about distinguishing people, but it's about signaling a broader ethical allegiance. Um, and so that's what I went looking for. I wanted to explain how Salafism works as a project in a manner that would be both recognizable to those who identify as Salafi themselves, but also a conversation that academics could have um, about mm. how this movement works. And how it has developed, because the only way we are going to understand these questions is essentially pushing past these platitudes. Mm. I
2: think, uh, yeah, absolutely. It sounds a very worthwhile project. Just to give a very brief uh, paragraph uh, from uh, an article by Abu Khadija. He's a leading Salafi writer and teacher in the UK. And he, he's written an article which one can read online called What is a Salafi? Uh, and it has many, many paragraphs to it. But I was going to read a few brief sentences from the very start. And he says, and that this is a self-definition of a leading Salafi uh, in the UK. To be a Salafi, he writes, means adhering to the creed, methodology and the way of life of the Salaf, the pious predecessors. These are the, like the disciples of Jesus, if you like, uh, in mm-hmm. uh, although they're not quite. <laughs> the earliest of the uh, Salaf was the generation of the prophet and his companions, then after them came the virtuous three generations of believers who held fast to the sunnah of the prophet and his companions. So it's not just the Quran, the sunnah is those three generations as well. The person who understands this path correctly, he writes, follows it exactly without introducing anything into it nor deviating from it is a Salafi. Quote unquote. And that's from an article entitled, What is Salafism and What Does It Call to by Abu Khadija? So you just Google that, and a very long article gives many, many points and subsections and details of what you must believe to be a a Salafi. So their perception is very much that they are the authentic, original um, uh, inheritors of that first practice. And the other thing, and we discussed this briefly, Aaron, before, before we started the recording, is The misunderstanding, and you briefly alluded to, actually, of in the West, particularly in Europe, of Salafis uh, equating with terrorists or or violent jihad. This is virtually this is false because the overwhelming majority in Britain, in Germany and everywhere and in Egypt, your special area, are quietest politically. In other words, they're not even involved in politics, let alone uh, violent uh, overthrows. And they usually quite have a very uh, austere doctrine of obedience to the state. Uh, yeah. to the governing authorities, to the Islamic rulers, even when they behave unjustly. It's only in very particular exceptions can the removal of Islamic ruler be even thought about, let alone routinely considered. So the, the, the reality is quite different from the Western perception very
1: often.
0: Yeah, and I, I actually think one of the... There, there's recently um, Thomas Heghammer's wonderful book about Abdallah Azam came out. And for my purposes, one of the juiciest anecdotes was essentially a description of the jihadi movement in 1980s Afghanistan, of which Salafis were a distinct minority. Um, and the basic gist of the story that Heghammer was telling vis-a-vis Salafis was that essentially these que- these theological and legal disagreements that Salafis had with non-Salafis um, based on both neo-Hanbali theology and a particular approach to emphasize in the first three generations of the Muslim community, actually mm. got them in some social hot water in mm. 1980s Afghanistan, because they were a minority within that broader majority. Um, now, since then, the Salafi-Jihadi approach has taken over the Jihadi movement more broadly, but it was, that wasn't all the case. And as you rightly note, the vast majority of Salafis are quiet. Um, and mm. so it, in some sense, it's a very strange uh Reversal that the, mm. the minority of Salafis who are Salafi jihadis end up being represented as the majority um, of the group. Mm. Um, I, I do want to come back to that uh, self-definition self-defin- by Abu Khadija.
1: Mm, um,
0: because I think it's actually very, really brings out something fundamental about how Salafis see their project. Namely, mm. that this is a project of reproducing of intense fidelity to the model of the Salaf, of the hmm. first three generations of the pious
1: ancestors, yeah.
0: and of not deviating from it, of not embracing any form of bidah of innovation. And I, I think that in terms of how, I, th- I think there's good reason to think that Salafis understand themselves in exactly this way, uh, that hmm. this is a self-understanding that is sincere, um, it is backed up by serious textual study, um, an intensive project of textual reconstruction of the 7th century um, in order to best approximate the way that Muslims lived during this early period. But here's the thing, right?
1: Hmm.
0: Salafis are no more capable than any other human being of avoiding the intellectual dynamics of their time of stepping outside of history. Mm. Um, and so to say that Salafis don't engage in bid'ah, this is a position, of course, within the Islamic tradition. It's an interpretive position. It's a position to piece of vis-a-vis thick, um, But it's, it's in some sense an insufficient position if we're analyzing Salafism as a project because we can't, none of us can escape the worlds from which we come, even to the extent that we rebel against those worlds, that we push back against those worlds. We can't escape those worlds. We are always reacting to those worlds. And so if we think about Salafism in the Middle East as a project that essentially emerges um, in the shadow of both colonial modernity and the overwhelming power of first um, colonial states, before that, the Ottoman Egyptian state in the Egyptian context, and then post-colonial secular nationalist states, they are reacting to this. They are shaped by this, like, you know, to take the example of Egypt, like other Egyptians, they, they attend Egyptian public schools. They often work in Egyptian state institutions, which have their own internal logics, which have their own ways of seeing the world. And it simply is to place Salafis within history to say they are reacting to that world from which they come. And what they're doing is not reproducing the seventh century. Mm. What they're doing is not sidestepping the inevitable reality that one is necessarily shaped by the changes of history, whether one likes it or not. Um, but rather what they're doing is engaging in an active reconstruction of the 7th century in order to mount a particular project in the 20th and 21st centuries. Mm. And to give you an example of how a term that is very old can have new meaning, um, and this is really something I focus on in chapter two of my book, the concept of tawhid right? This is about as basic an Islamic concept as there is.
1: Mm.
0: The concept that we can trace back to the earliest of Islamic history it is a concept that within the theological tradition, uh, particularly figures such as Ibn Taymiyyah, um, is, not, is very clearly not simply about belief, but also about practice. As Cole Bunzel has pointed out, this is not a question of monotheism. This is a question of monolatry, of orienting all of one's actions towards the worship of one God. So we see salafis in the 20th century saying we are, Proponents of Tawheed. We live by Tawheed. Yes. The question is, what does that
2: mean? There are certain and, uh, course, just, I just point out uh, for, the, for viewers who may not realize the, the idea that Tawheed is a central concept or concern of, of of faith is not exclusive to Salafis, of course. No, not at all. It's the mainstream Sunni tradition would also assent to that. Yeah. So uh, there's an element of making distinctions here rather than a, a completely new phenomena. This is uh, a particular understanding of that perhaps, so what you're going to explain in more detail. But this is a shared belief of all Muslims, Indeed, it is taught by the Quran endlessly. Tawhid is a central concept. The oneness and unity of God, uh, as opposed to associating partners and distorted understandings of God held by other traditions, is emphasized constantly as the central belief of Islam uh, amongst virtually all Muslims, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and so this is part of what's so curious about the decision as a matter of differentiation from other Muslims yeah. to emphasize Tawhid to this degree. And the question is, so why do Salafis do that? And what does the Salafi conception of Tawhid include? Uh, and the question of why they do it is because what we are talking about is an internal Muslim battle. That yeah. the claim isn't that uh, that Salafis are the only ones who uphold Tawhid, all Muslims do Rather, the claim is that their understanding of Tawheed is the correct one. Correct.
1: But
0: but we need to also think beyond the strict categories of Tawheed as a category. Because Mm -hmm. what does it mean in a country that is such as Egypt, that is majority Muslim, Mm -hmm. vastly, you know, has a vast Muslim majority to Mm -hmm. say we uphold Tawheed? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. And here we also have to think about the fact that Tawheed Asserting Tawhid, in some sense, is a claim of sovereignty. It's a claim of who should control how we think, how we act. And there, in the background, are the claims to sovereignty of the modern Egyptian state. In the background are the is the dominance of secular nationalism in the 20th century. And so if we really want to understand what it means for Salafis to invoke God's oneness, We first, of course, look to Islamic history and to what that concept means. We look horizontally to other Muslims to understand the way in which this fits within this broader Islamic context. But we also look to ideological developments that have nothing to do with the Islamic tradition. And part of what's so, what was so interesting to me in this book is when I went looking for how Salafis in 20th century Egypt came to articulate a particular understanding of tawhid that was premised on not just belief but action, it's that they relied on a category that superficially has real basis in the Islamic scholarly tradition, but they were using a different concept. Namely, they're using the concept of adar, or custom, and, and you know, the customs of the prophet, mm. and the observance of the customs of the prophet as one of the key aspects of tawhid. Now, looking at this is, was very interesting because, right, one, historically, we have a real distinction between acts of worship, ibadat, mutual transaction, mu'amadat, and a variety um, of local practices over which there is no, that are simply glossed as adah or urf. They're just custom. Um, and the Islamic tradition has no particular statement over them. And for example, one of those, uh, one of those categories is clothing right, that Muslims throughout history have dressed in widely differing ways, um, that broadly Mm -hmm. speaking, there is a concern with imitation uh, of um, Mm non-Muslims, but that there are, and there's an incredible diversity, not just historically, but also today, of how Muslims dress. Um, Now, what's interesting is in the 1930s and 40s in Egypt and also beyond Egypt, Salafis come to incorporate a very different definition of adar custom it's a definition drawn from secular nationalism in which custom is a central the the effacement of previous customs the their replacement with new customs are an essential means of mobilizing the social collective in pursuit of a particular project this is and thus custom becomes part of the Salafi conception of God's oneness. Now, if we're just thinking about the Islamic legal tradition, this makes very little sense. And if we're even thinking about the Hadith corpus, this makes very little sense. But if we situate Salafism within, within the context of 20th century ideological contestation, particularly with secular nationalism, then the connections become clear.
2: Hmm. Can, can you give examples just to um, make it clearer what, what we're talking about specifically? Do you mention clothing, uh, uh, perhaps? Um...
0: So, so, if we're talking about, well, let me, let me take a step back. Hmm. For Salafis to be a Salafi is to be seen as a Salafi, that there is a real concern with appearance. Now, one might think of concern with appearance as superficial, I think that's missing, that's missing something crucial. Um, I mean, there's this classic distinction between shells and cores. And I, I think that that is missing the point here. One might also say, oh, well, the reason Salafis care about beards is because secular nationalists care about beards and it, and Islamists care about beards. And they all have their own interpretations of what, a, what proper facial hair looks like. Interestingly, in the case of uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Egypt's leading Salafi organization on Sarah Sunnah muhammadiyah the hadith report that each site in support of their respective interpretations of beards is actually the same hadith report. It's about Ibn Omar trimming his beard to a minimum of to a, the minimum of the qabda, the fist, um, prior to going on Umrah. Um, but the crucial point is, so why are they fighting over facial hair? Why are they competing over facial hair? Uh, why do people care about facial hair? And it's certainly the case that if we look at Islamic history, facial hair is a key site for masculinity generally and religious masculinity in particular. Um, and it's
2: also true that imitating, of course, there's a great uh, passion to imitate the Prophet, his life, yes. even down to uh, you know the, the, uh, minute details of behavior and hygiene and so on, uh, appearance, uh, beard uh that there is this desire to emulate the most uh you know the most extraordinary man who ever lived and indeed the, the god says so in the quran that we should yeah. give him as a perfect example so there's an understandable motivation uh to to do that if one is uh very committed to uh I- islam to imitate the prophet indeed that's Absolutely. the point of the religion to some extent yeah
0: yeah and so this is so there is this goal of imitating the prophet mm. but Essentially, all of these legal debates over how long a beard should be are mo- more or less theoretical debates. We don't find scholars in the pre modern period engaged in furious argumentation of whether the beard is a minimum of a fist or not. We, you know, There's this wonderful debate in the mid 1990s between Abdelaziz bin Bez and Muhammad Nasser Al Al Beni, two heavyweights of the Salafism movement, on exactly this topic. And the question is, So why is everyone so concerned with beards? Uh, Not, the the argument isn't that beards are novel, but what is it about the 20th century that leads Salafis, and for that matter, non-Salafis to argue over beards? And the answer is, and this comes back to your point about this commitment to emulating the Prophet Muhammad, 19th and 20th century projects of Forming sound citizens in Egypt and elsewhere make mm-hmm. a basic assumption. Namely that what you look like reflects a broader ethical commitment, reflects mm-hmm. a broader moral project. Mm-hmm. And so there in that context, it's not the not that the that a beard acquires significance at all, but rather it takes on a new significance. It takes on an expanded significance of representing one's commitment to emulating the Prophet Muhammad. That the ideal of emulating the Prophet was always there. This is something we can trace well back into Islamic history as well. it's a core assumption of the Sunnah as an authoritative set of texts. But the question is, why does it become then a site of contestation? And interestingly enough, right, it becomes a site of contestation, not merely between Islamic movements and their secular counterparts, but among Islamic movements, or even a site of contestation within Salafism. Mm -hmm. And the only way, to my mind, to really understand why it becomes such a heated site of contestation is this 19th, 20th century linkage between ethics and appearance. This assumption that how you look suggests or requires, or it, 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 it suggests, it underscores a broader ethical commitment to a particular project. That's why it's, it's so important to Salafis how they look. Far from being a superficial matter, it is actually intrinsically tied to what it means to be a pious Muslim, to what it means to orient mm-hmm. oneself to a particular religio-ethical project. I'm
2: just wondering in the context, you mentioned the 19th and 20th century, of course, these are the, the centuries of colonialism when the yes. West principally to be in the form of the British and then the, the French before them and other countries and other parts of Africa, Italy and Libya and so were actively colonizing and imposing their quote-unquote superior civilization mm-hmm. on the Muslim world in North Africa and everywhere else, I think, as well. Um, and so the the idea of a Muslim identity in the face of such hegemony, military, cultural, political hegemony might then become an issue because do we emulate the clean-shaven Europeans uh, who dress in a certain way with their with their trousers and their suits or their armor whatever or do we emulate another model by uh, the model of the prophet so I'm wondering how much that contested definition of what it is just to be in the modern world in North Africa uh, fed into these debates in terms of the the context
0: yeah well, I think it, I think the colonial period is central for understanding the emergence of salafism because, chronologically speaking, that's when salafism as a movement emerges. Um, and it's absolutely the case that one has also these crossovers between colonial elites and in their fashion styles and local Egyptians or you know local folks elsewhere. Hmm. I think, in some sense, what is striking about the story of social practice and Salafism is that these debates don't, for the most part, break out until the post-colonial period. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a few ideas as to why this is. If we think about the colonial period, the binaries, the dividing line is pretty clear, right? You have Muslims and non-Muslims. You have foreign occupiers who are not Muslim, who are Christian, who are supporting, also not just colonizing but are enabling a broader Christian proselytization, missionary project, um, primarily Protestant, but also Catholic. Um, you of course have a minority of Coptic Christians in Egypt, but the majority of Egyptians are Muslim. So in some sense, we have a clear divide. And even the divide between Western and Eastern Christianity is quite clear in this context. We shift to the post-colonial period, which in Egypt is 1952. And suddenly there's a new challenge, right? Because historically, you know, in the colonial context, appeals to Islamic piety as a bulwark against colonial um, influence, as a means of signaling one's identity as a Muslim is a relatively straightforward affair uh, because it's not resembling, it's taking on one model and it's not resembling the foreign occupiers. The challenge in the post-colonial period is that suddenly the vast majority of the folks who are competing to claim a mantle of authenticity, for some religiously based authenticity, for others not, um, are, are almost all Muslims. And so therefore there needs to be a process of self-differentiation among Muslims. And this is the context right in which this appeal to Tawhid takes on its particular balance. There needs to be a way for some Islamic movements to distinguish themselves from other Islamic movements. Uh, now, part of what's so fascinating about this move, and then about the sources that are cited in, from the Hadith corpus that are cited in support of this move, is that the question of social distinction is very much one that was present in seventh-century Arabia as well. Right? This is: we have many of these citations for bodily practice are premised on distinguishing Muslims from non-Muslims. Um, Jews, yes. Christians, Zoroastrians, etc. Um, well, well, one,
2: one of the examples uh, you mentioned in your book is uh, the the, uh, the idea of, of the Salafis emphasizing not wearing one's clothes or one's robes uh, beneath uh, that cover of the ankles.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, and and of course this is uh, um, found in many authentic hadith uh, which forbid wearing one's clothes below the ankles. Bukhari, for example, and it's interesting in looking. Uh, I refresh my memory, looking at some of these hadiths again today. Um, sometimes the reasons are given in Sahih Hadith. There's one particular Sahih Hadith which, where the Prophet says, uh, obviously not to do this practice because it is a kind of showing off.
1: Yeah. So uh, it's, right. it,
2: it's not just uh, let us look different from the others, the non-believers, but also that it, it symbolises a, a spiritually negative practice, i.e., hubris or showing off or pride. And so there is a sense that the, these clothes signify um a, a negative spiritual a spiritual practice or disposition of the heart and yeah. that's why it was uh prohibited for muslims and and salafis having this uh need to go back to the original practice and not just uh, salafis by the way uh, it the uh, there's the bandis. uh, yeah. uh there, there many of these salaf salafi tropes that you mention in your book are actually not exclusive to Salafis. Uh, I was speaking to a Hanafi scholar here in the UK earlier, and he, he mentioned the Deobandis. Now, these are missionary movements, particularly the Tablighi Jamaat. Yeah. Uh, you actually, you, these are not Salafis, of course. These are uh, Hanafi, well, the Hanafi uh, people, but uh, they also had these same uh, 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 emphasis on dressing a certain way, with a beard, and a certain way. So, it so it seems to be not just an exclusive Salafi practice, but uh, is found in at least one other. Huge, if that is arguably the largest missionary Islamic movement in the world, that they also had this concern, uh, it would seem.
0: Yeah, yeah, and part of what's interesting is actually one of the things one finds is a translation of the Obandi texts from Urdu into Arabic in Saudi Arabia in the 70s and 80s, particularly in the debate over the beard. Mm. Um, what I What I would say is, in some sense, it is certainly isbel is a really interesting case because one does have this other value to it of um not communicating arrogance um and but part but here again this is what gets so what's so striking about solidism is and this underscores this concern with visibility this profound concern with visibility is -hmm. that in the muphib tradition there is essentially, there is an acceptance of this as a principle, this concern that Isbel signifies something that is really improper, um, and un-Muslim. And so therefore one should observe the prohibition, mm-hmm. but also an acknowledgement that sometimes that long robes don't have to necessarily communicate arrogance. Right. There are scenarios in which long robes are just long robes that that it's nothing more than
1: a piece
0: of cloth. Yeah, I can
2: see that. that. If you take the inner meaning of this practice uh, and and retain that, so we mustn't be arrogant, we mustn't wear clothes where we show off, uh, and if the cultural reference is no longer there, as it was in the seventh century, I could see how one could argue that. Uh, I can see that Salafis, who have a a very a a more literal understanding of imitating the prophet precisely as he was, Mm -hmm. uh, would, would perhaps acknowledge that but still say We're going to follow the prophet's example because he's the prophet. We're going to we're going to be like him. So it might even transcend just the meaning of that, but also uh, uh, the 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 actual clothing itself.
0: But but, so here's here's what was so fascinating to me about tracing these practices because one has a trajectory of practices where Salafis adopt a variety of practices, and in doing so, this not only entrench a particular project of emulating the prophet, but also Entrench themselves in their societies, mm. but then there's a practice that essentially drops off, namely praying in shoes, which is a practice that yeah. has clear basis in the Hadith yeah. corpus of Absolutely. not of not simply someone such as Ibn Omar doing it, which is our c- our main citation for the beard, but of the Prophet Muhammad himself doing it. Mm. We know historically that praying in shoes drops off within the first few hundred years of Islamic history as part of the broader transition of the Islamic project to becoming an urban um, one in which there was a concern of essentially dirtying very nice mosque carpets. So we know that with the exception of the Hanbali school, praying in shoes drops off. And then Ansar Sunnah in the 40s and 50s revived it. Um, Mm -hmm. And for about 15 years, they argue that this is a really central project, that this is crucial to emulating Muhammad and so forth. Then Abdel Nasser comes to power. And Mm. having spent the time to read every single page of every single issue of Ansar publications from really 1930 to 1936 to 1995, what was very striking was that up until basically 1989, they didn't talk about praying issues. Mm, It totally dropped off the agenda. Um, Mm. And... There's a very easy explanation for that in the 50s, namely that under a brutal, authoritarian, secular nationalist ruler, you don't want to do anything that will draw attention to you. Um, and so beards are dangerous there, and praying in shoes is dangerous there too.
1: Hmm. But
0: what's striking is that when the debate comes back, and again, in the 40s and 50s, it is depicted by leading members of Ansara Sunnah as being essential to what it means to emulate Muhammad. When the debate comes back, what is so striking is that Salafi scholars say, yes, the practice is permissible. Some argue that it is mustahab, that it's praiseworthy, but no one is arguing that it's required anymore.
1: Mm, mm. And
0: instead, they're actually coming up with a variety of what are essentially extra textual justifications, which anyone versed in the madhab tradition is much more familiar with, but for Salafis, everything has to be based on the Quran and Sunnah, all these extra textual justifications of why, even though this is a praiseworthy practice, if it leads to any kind of social discord, which insofar as it was a practice of, you know, very clearly identify, you know, establishing lines within mosques of who is Salafi and who is not, invariably would produce some level of social discord. Um, that But the argument was, if this produces some level of social discord, or if this leads to the mosque carpets being dirtied, um, then it shouldn't be done. Then it should be avoided.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: what's so striking about this argument is that this is the argument that in the 40s and 50s, those who were arguing against praying in shoes were making. And now that argument has essentially been incorporated by Salafis to mm-hmm. justify not engaging in a practice that half a century earlier, they identified unequivocally as a crucial and central practice um, necessary to emulate Muhammad.
2: Interesting. I didn't know about the the shoes until until I looked it up. I mean, in our local mosque here, Regent's Park Mosque in London, a huge mosque, we just yeah. got some very nice new carpets put down, and I know no one would be happy if you walked on those carpets. <laughs> Shoes—they would be instantly uh, ejected, and uh, and rightly so. But uh, but no, if it was the Sunnah. But on the other hand, there are parks, you know, Hyde Park, uh, Speakers Corner, where, uh, where Muslims pray outside, and they do wear their shoes. So it seems yeah. there seems to be some, uh, and rightly so, because uh, you know it can be very cold and so on. Um, so there's flexibility, it seems.
0: Yeah. And there's also, of course, an, a whole conversation, legally speaking, of whether one can pray in socks. Um,
1: yeah.
0: But yeah, it's you know, what's interesting to me, what's interesting to me is when salafis are inconsistent, uh, and that's not because, as a scholar, I find it particularly interesting um, to catch people in inconsistencies, because that's a not the point of what I'm doing, and b that's missing the point of why inconsistency is interesting. It's precisely the tensions or inconsistencies in any, ideolo- any ideological project, religious or non-religious, any world-making project. Um, it's those inconsistencies that really help us understand the internal tensions, help us understand the historical developments, help us really cast light on the ways in which these projects are negotiated in very intricate and intimate way, I, I, I intimate relation. To social life, um, that there's a discourse that every project has, secular nationalist, Islamist, Salafi, of representing a pure ideal and of then telling history in a way that reproduces that pure ideal. Uh, and this is something we see done across the board. But if we want to understand how these movements work, how they are the projects of human beings living in the here and now, then we've got to focus on the tensions. Uh, and that's what's so fun to me and so intellectually productive to me about looking at how practices wax and wane, because it really gets us into this question of how is this a human endeavor?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, are there any other examples? I know you mentioned some other ones in in your book uh, about uh, the relationship between men and women, uh, for example.
0: Sure. Um, so Salafis seek to separate men and women. Um in the book i used I used the term gender segregation. It can also be called, gender separation, Um, this is a commitment to separating men and women in public space. Uh, And the question is where that project comes from. Um, Now, if we look back at Islamic history, it is clearly the case that we have the separation of men and women in a mosque setting. But beyond that, the primary concern of the pre-modern Islamic legal tradition is illicit Sexual relations, namely Zinna, um, that men and women will have intercourse out of wedlock and preventing the regulating the spaces that might lead to that occurring. Um, There is not a broader concern with regulating public space in a manner that separates men and women. Um, So the question then becomes where that project comes from. And indeed I actually when I was writing my first book about the rise of the Islamic revival in 1970s Egypt and I came across the term gender mixing ikhtilat al-jinsayn and I saw Salafis arguing strongly against it I thought to myself, "Huh, where does that come from?" You know, maybe Salafis have been doing this for a long time. And I then trace back to the 20s and 30s and find nothing of the sort. And indeed find that up until really the 19 through the 1960s the primary argument that Salafis were making about female modesty was an individual-centered concept, that the idea that women should dress themselves modestly, that they should act modestly. For mm. um, that matter also, that men should act modestly. Um, and this is most notably present in two key texts from this period um, – one of them by Muhammad Nasr al-Din al and the other by Naamat Sitki, um, a leading female Egyptian Salafi, um, who was very high up in Ansar al Hamadiya. And what was so interesting here is that Asitki wrote a book that was actually originally serialized in Ansar al-Sunna's magazine. Um, it was called At-Tabaraj, or Flaunting. Um, it refers to the Quranic prohibition against flaunting. And then it was published as a book, in as a pamphlet, in the early 70s. So we have this whole discourse of Tabarush, which Al-Albani subscribes to, which Sithki subscribes to, which is about individual female conduct. Over the course of the 1970s, Salafis, not merely in Egypt, but also in areas as varied as Yemen, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, come to subscribe to an understanding of Tabarush that identifies it with separated, with a prohibition against gender mixing.
2: So what is moon again? So if you just repeat One, it,
0: it. It's, yeah, the idea of women flaunting,
2: flaunting. Okay, and uh, uh, right men 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 faun- faun- not, not yeah. men. Faun- so it's just exclusively men. it's exclusively connected to women flaunting. You're saying, rather
0: yeah.
1: than men. Uh-huh. Correct, correct. Okay. Sure. Um,
0: and so in the late seventies, Ibn Baz, who at this point actually is writing in Ansara Sunna's magazine Atalhid. So can oh, I, I? I
2: don't, I promised the last time I did, just in case the viewers don't know, Ibn Baz was a Saudi Arabian Islamic scholar. He was also the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia yeah. um, until his death in 1999. So this is not just some random scholar. Yeah. He's the, the top guy in Saudi Arabia and the leader of the Salafi uh, understanding, if you like, for some years from 1993 until 1999. Just so I get that on yeah. record. Yeah,
0: Sorry. so Ibn Baz is a huge figure within yeah. the Salafi movement. Uh, if we're talking about the big three of 20th century Salafism, we're talking about Ibn Bez, Ibn al-Uthaymin, also a Saudi scholar, and Muhammad Nasr al-Din okay. originally Albanian, who kind yeah. of emigrated, a perpetual emigre yeah. uh, from Damascus to Jordan to Saudi Arabia, back from Saudi Arabia and so forth. Um, so okay. Ibn Bez, in the pages of Ansar sunnahs journal, takes the position that gender mixing is forbidden by Islam. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting is how he takes that position, which reveals something about Salafism intellectual thought Because there are, of course, plenty of precedents from the previous two decades in Saudi Arabia of how to argue against gender mixing. Uh, and we see this in the work of Muhammad bin Ibrahim, really the doyen of the Saudi religious establishment, um, even more powerful than Ibn Baz in his day, uh, who dies in 1969. And Muhammad bin Ibrahim makes the argument that this leads. This is a classic case of damning the pretexts of sin. That it's not that women and men being in the same place is forbidden on its own, but the problem is what it invariably leads to. Um, it there invariably leads to foreign, to sex outside of marriage, to zina, and therefore it's forbidden. And this is a pretty standard madhab-based argument against. Um, Men and women being in the same space, but Ibn Baz, as a Salafi, can't make this argument, or it's harder for him to make this argument because the Salafi interpretive approach argues that everything is coming from the Quran and the Sunnah. So therefore, one needs proof texts from the Quran and the Sunnah. So Ibn Baz makes the argument, and I, you know, I was stunned the first time I read this. Um, he writes at tabaraj, so flaunting al-ikhtilat. The prohibition against flaunting means a prohibition against mixing. This is a totally new view of the meaning of tabarish, one that would have made zero sense to either Sitzki or al-Beni. But it's a position that Ibn Baz takes first in Ansar Sunnah's journal, then he takes it in the journal of the Islamic University of Medina. This is all sort of mid to late 70s. By mm-hmm. the early 80s, he's dropped this argument he's he's still arguing that separating men and women is required he's still arguing that tabaruj is forbidden but he's no longer arguing that tabaruj means mixing that the prohibition against flaunting is a prohibition against mixing um and this underscores the fact that this project of separating men and women is a novel one that for salafis It's not just that the project isn't adopted as a non-negotiable principle until the 1970s. It's also that they're in a very challenging position because they don't have a citation from the Quran or Sunnah that easily lends itself to a direct proof text approach. No, but
2: what, I mean. they, what they might have, I mean, this is obviously as we can discuss this another time. But there is, there are different roles in in Islam uh, uh, as mandated in the Quran, the Sunnah. For example, a woman's role appears to be. Uh, more to be at home and to pray at home although mm-hmm. the ideas are saying she can't you know don't prevent the women from going to the mo- the massages if they want but nevertheless the center of gravity is m- b- very much at home and the man is expected is expected uh to go to the mosque uh, a- and work and so on so you have this sense of different roles and yeah. therefore different social spaces inhabited by the, the genders and that mm-hmm. leads over time to the sense of, of um what, what you call in your book segregation but the, uh, the difference is the the separation of sexes in Social life, um, so there's not as if there's an explicit command. Absolutely, but nevertheless, there's the logic of it leading to that position uh, over time, uh, uh, and they developed over time upon reflection on the Quran and the Sunnah and the implications of that for social relations.
0: Would that be absolute, one look? One could absolutely make the case that you just made, but one could also make a variety of other cases of be- of. Men and women, and this is a case that non-Salafis made of men and women interacting in public space in pious fashion as mm. being something very beneficial to mm. the maqlaha, to the common good, as yep. it being an intellectual, political, social, and economic driver for Muslim-majority countries. Mm. Now, what's re- So it's not that gender separation or segregation is unthinkable. In terms of the Islamic tradition, I mean, particularly we have this association from at least the ninth century on um, of female sexuality with the concern with fitna. Uh, And this is work that Marianne Katz has done um, with really fascinating scholarship. But there's still a leap there because what this is doing here is not simply saying that the question of zinna can be regulated by expectations of individual conduct. Um, it's not simply saying that there is a particular gendered vision of public and private space, which I agree with you. One can certainly argue in terms of Islamic history that there are normative expectations of men and women, respectively, that differ. What this is arguing is that there needs to be a state-sponsored project of active separation.
2: Oh, I see. And
0: this is a project that, simply by virtue of being a project of the modern state is very hard to conceive of as a yes. project of a pre-modern state, but also that by Salafi's own interpretive approach is very, very hard to justify. Um, and as a result, what we see is that Ibn Baz and you know, other Salafis, when dealing with this question later, essentially try to skirt around the proof text issue, uh, which is not something they, they commonly do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ibn Baz here is in some sense in a particularly challenging position because on the one hand, he works as a Salafi minority in some sense within a Wahhabi Hanbali majority in Saudi Arabia, where gender separation is already institutionalized. And on the other hand, he has on his other flank, he has al beni who's not just arguing that gender s- separation isn't required, but also arguing that the niqab isn't required. And so, I wouldn't be surprised if there, structurally there, was some pressure to come up with a way to argue for gender separation, um, but to me, beyond the particular position of Ibn Baz, what's so striking is that, as with all these practices, if this project was essentially self-explanatory, if it essentially came directly from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, what took 40 years?
1: Mm.
0: Um, that tells us that this is a story rather of a rather long interpretive project that is shaped by questions of women's presence in public space, of female sexuality, of ideological contestation, and of the power of the modern state that are very much questions of the 20th century.
2: Yeah, I think, that, so, particularly the existence of the modern nation state, which in the Muslim world is a legacy of colonialism. Of course, there used to be a uh, the Ottoman Empire and so on, and now we've got these statelets, numerous statelets with, with numerous rulers. This is a. Uh, 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 arguably not consistent with the normative Sunni position of having a single ruler and so on. But this creates a unique set of modern uh, challenges where you have a a, a powerful, centralised state, top-down governance with European-type laws that regulate and so on. And as a legacy of colonialism, Egypt obviously is one example, but there are many others. And, and th- this creates new challenges you know do you just islamize this european nation state or do you look to previous social patterns or more devolved where you have courts and other patterns of jurisprudence and 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 regulation it's it's a real um uh challenge uh so i think you're, you're 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 highlighting some some very interesting examples there
0: and you know this challenge is part of what looking at these challenges allows us to do is think about the ways in which Salafis are not simply comparable with other Muslims in a given country in the Middle East, but also comparable with broader shifts of religiosity globally during this period, that if we think about the 20th century, particularly the period after 1970, we see religious revivals globally. Yeah. and we see efforts to reorient daily life around religion everywhere from sub-Saharan Africa to Latin America to the United States. In the Middle East, we see it among Jews and Christians as well. Uh, one has a Coptic revival in Egypt. One has a religious Zionist revival in Israel. And so then we can essentially start to ask this question of, yeah, to say, yes, there is something distinct about the Salafi Project. Absolutely. There is an active reconstruction of early Islamic history. There are a set of internal Egyptian, internal Muslim questions that the Salafi project seeks to tackle. Mm -hmm. But what are the broader environmental conditions that are shaping these similarities globally? And this is one of the things that global history helps us do, to think about two sets of questions. When we notice similar phenomena globally, to think about two sets of questions, explain one is are these similar phenomena, the, essentially the, the product of similar input, similar environmental conditions? And B, are, are they the product of linkages, that there's a growing awareness or a growing interaction uh, among different groups, which leads them to dress, for example, dress in similar ways? And one of the explanations uh, by the global historian Christopher Bailey for why we see increasingly similar forms of national dress over the course of the uh, long 19th, um, and then into the early 20th century is precisely this, these interactions where nations are distinguishing themselves with, from other nations. So everyone has mm. to have a national dress. And so there is mm. some indigenous part of that national heritage that is then utilized in the service of constituting a national dress. Um, mm. And so this is really interesting here to think about Salahism And And I, to my mind, the, Best parallel is, in some sense, may may in the political climate of today seem the most unlikely. Um, the best parallel is actually ultra orthodox Judaism. In mm,
1: oh, interesting.
0: Yeah, um, that's interesting.
2: Yes, I, I've I've never, yeah I thought of that myself. I, I, having bumped into some uh, so called ultra orthodox, not that they call themselves that Jews, uh, th- th- there was there's a certain
0: whiff of Salafi about them, if I can put it that way. Well, <clears throat> but, and there's this wonderful article. Um, from the early 90s in the Jewish studies journal, Tradition, um, mm. written by a scholar um, at essentially the flagship of modern Orthodox Judaism, um, the academic flagship of modern Orthodox Judaism in the United States by the name of Chaim Soloveitchik, um, whose father, Joseph Soloveitchik, was a major modern Orthodox figure in the 20th century United States. Uh, and what's so interesting about what the younger Soloveitchik writes is he essentially traces this process, by which the pious religious practices of earlier generation of of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews in the United States, Mm. the expectations of piety changed. They became much more precise, much more exacting. Mm. Um, The concern with how to perform a particular religious obligation properly was no longer you do it as you were taught to do it by your parents or by your community, and more... What's the precise amount of food that is required to fulfill this commandment? Let's measure the food, make sure we've got the precise amount. Uh, it, a level of profound precision that, A, is uh, simply not reflective of historical practice among even, Jews even half the century earlier, but B, mm-hmm. really underscores both the spread of print and the normative power of modern science. In this context, I think we see when we think of these two cases side by side um, Mm. the similarity between the two in terms of this focus on texts and precision, uh, the spread of print in this context, the broader cultural shift in which pious individuals of a certain time look back at their parents and grandparents' generation and say, looking back at how they observed religion, they were lax. didn't they were they thought they were doing it right but they were not doing it right because we know how to do it right now because we are looking at these sources we are measuring and so forth that's a really fascinating transformation
1: Mm -hmm. and it's
0: not a transformation i I think Salafis are often described as particularly focused on precision in ritual practice um and I think there's two problems with this as a description. One is that they're not the only Muslims who are concerned with questions of precision and ritual practice, Um, but, but secondly, it's the fact that this concern with precision is arguably a concern external to any of these religious traditions in the way that it is manifested now. It's not that people didn't seek to studiously perform their religious obligations in a previous generation. But there are a set of normative ideas of what precision means in the 20th century that simply wouldn't have made a lot of sense in the 19th or 18th centuries. Mm. I, don't, I don't
2: know. I just tend to think that a lot, a lot of this uh, renewed focus on precision and action. It, it, uh, it, you mentioned Jews in America and so on. may has something to do. I don't have any scholarship. To hand to back this up with the increased entrenchment of secularization uh, and the hegemony of western liberalism uh and the, uh, and the breakdown of religious communities and this kind of cultural reinforcement it was just part of the air you breathe but now mm. uh, that, that's been diluted or destroyed completely and so to, to, to practice your faith now, you have to make that extra effort to yeah. actually articulate it, to actually practice it. And what does that mean? Well, you've got to understand what that means. And so there, there is a, it, it's almost like a consequence of the breakdown of traditional uh, religiosity in the united states uh, and uh, obviously in western europe as well leading to the rediscovery and reassertion of faith in this precise way uh, in that context so I, I might see it as partly a reaction against the decline of faith uh, uh, in the west and and the way to because you can't just rely on the world around you anymore you've got yeah. to make an effort and making the effort means you've got to actually know what you're doing and define it and clarify it and so on, leading yeah. to that precision. So in that sense, it's actually a healthy reaction against secularization. It's an attempt of religion to reassert itself in a world which has taken away the support that we had just five minutes ago in historical time.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I think that's true. And I would add something to that, namely that it's a reaction to the fact that modern states, carrying particular ideological projects, whatever those ideological projects may be, politicize daily life, that they seek to regulate daily practice. Yes. And so that it should be entirely unsurprising to us that Islamic movements or piety movements from other faiths seek to claim daily practice. And this isn't the, the normal narrative we get, and this is a narrative from the perspective of those who essentially take secularization as a normative given the narrative we get is that these groups are politicizing daily life but the reality is that's not actually what's happening here these groups are not politicizing daily life; they are reacting to the politicization of daily life and doing so on terms set by the state Um, and so in some sense one doesn't have to take a position on which which model of daily life one desires, to simply note that structurally, this is the dynamic at play here.
1: Mm, mm, and mm. then we
0: can't understand piety movements unless we understand the ways in which states politicize daily life from the get-go. Mm,
2: yeah. Okay, I, I, just finally, well, uh, in terms of a takeaway from your, your book, um, uh, which is uh, shade of the Sunnah, Salafi piety in the twentieth in twentieth century Middle East. What would you, in in brief, uh, share with uh, us as viewers uh, as a takeaway from this book, uh, to, just to remember what it might be? And and obviously, I'll put a link to it in the description below if you want to read it. If they want to read it for themselves,
0: this is a book about the emergence of Salafism as a social movement and about the ways in which Salafis seek to recapture the model of seventh century. Medina in the 20th century in ways that are deeply, deeply shaped by the questions and concerns of the 20th century. So if you want to read a book that really places Salafis in the world from which they've emerged and the world that they continue to work to shape, this could be a book that would be very interesting
2: ah oh, well that's a that's a great summary uh well indeed but thank you uh very much indeed uh, dr uh, Aaron Roxinger, for a fascinating um discussion i must say we could could have gone on for hours but uh <laughs> and uh, but very very interesting indeed and as i'll put a link to uh the book below if people want to uh, follow it up um it's just recently was it recently published this year i think was not it? yes
0: in may twenty twenty two
2: gosh so it's hot off the press even so hot awesome. off the press.
0: exactly yes.
2: <laughs> okay well thank you very much again for your time sir and uh well, Thank you. Until next time.